And if you would turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the portion we just read in our Scriptures, Psalm 119, verse 65. Let's pray together. O Lord our God and our Father, we thank You, Father, that because of Your wondrous providence, we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. We pray for grace this evening, O God, to let endurance have its perfect work. We would not short-circuit trials by grumbling or complaining or losing faith in them or turning to sinful pleasures, but that we might um, sanctify our trials or that You would sanctify the trials that You send into our life for the glory of Your name and the growth of Your kingdom and the good of Your people. We offer these prayers tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent Smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks penned an insightful piece a number of years ago in which he spoke about the fearful gift of suffering. He talks about the irony of our culture's obsession with happiness, and yet he says, Time and time and again, our growth comes only through difficulty. In a standout quote, he says, when people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It is often the ordeals that seem most significant. People shoot for happiness, he says, but they feel formed through suffering. And we know that as Christians. Uh, you, you might be familiar with the Getty hymn that we speak uh, that we sing from time to time, when trials come, when trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near, to fire a faith worth more than gold, and there His faithfulness is told, and there His faithfulness is told. Within the night I know your peace, the breath of God brings strength to me, and new each morning mercy flows as treasures of the darkness flow." as treasures of the darkness grow. At times, indeed often, the Christian finds himself in the darkness, and yet it's in that darkness that the light of God shines so brightly, and we find, as the Gettys tell us, treasures of the darkness, lessons that we could only learn through times of trial and difficulty. Martin Luther when he thought of Psalm 119, 
he said, I want you to know how to study theology, how to become a true theologian in the right way. I have practiced this method myself, he said. The method of which I'm speaking is the one which the holy King David teaches throughout Psalm 119. Here you will find three rules. Three rules. Elsewhere, he says, these three rules are the secret of becoming a true theologian. Oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and trial. That's how you become a true theologian. Prayer, looking to God, oratio. Meditation, thinking about Scripture and the character of God and the events of life and connecting the one with the other. Meditatio. But there's a third element that's necessary, just like an ingredient cake. One we were talking when I was back home in Northern Ireland, and uh, my wife, my, my, sorry, my mother, one of the first signs was she, she was a great baker, and one of the first signs of her Alzheimer's was she began to forget the recipes. And she made carrot cake one time, but forgot to put the carrots into it. And it's funny now, but but the cake wasn't quite right. And we, we had to think, what's wrong? And then we noticed the distinct lack of orange in the carrot cake. The carrots were missing. Well, you can, you can have oratio, prayer, and you can have meditatio, till the cows come home. But unless you have tentatio, times of trial and testing, Calvin, or Luther says, you'll never become a true theologian. When I was back home in Northern Ireland, my mother-in-law, she, she uses as her devotional uh, Luther's um, faith alone, and it's been remarkably helpful as I've been reading through it in recent days. And he, he says this about Sam, or John 15, and the Father as the true vine dresser pruning the vine. He says this passage presents a very comforting picture. Christ understood all the suffering that He and His followers would experience as nothing else but the work of a diligent gardener and pruner. Grapevines can grow and produce much fruit only with careful tending by the gardener. Christ wants to teach us that we should look at trials and suffering very differently from the way they appear and feel to us in the world. Suffering doesn't occur apart from God's will. It's not a sign of His anger. Rather, it's a sign of His mercy and His fatherly love. It will serve for the best. It's an art to believe that what hurts and distresses us doesn't occur to harm us, but to make us improve. What if the vine were aware of this, could talk, and could see the gardener cutting around its roots with a hoe? What if you could see the gardener pruning its branches with a pruning knife? After seeing and feeling all of this, it might say, Oh, what are you doing? Now I will wither and spoil because you are working on me, taking the soil away from me and scraping me with those iron teeth. Oh, you're tearing and pinching me everywhere, leaving me to stand here half naked. You are crueler to me than you are to other trees and plants that you leave alone. But the gardener would reply, you just don't understand. If I cut off a branch, it's because it's a useless branch which takes strength and sap away from you. The other branches won't be able to produce fruit and will also begin to fail. So off it goes. It's for your own good I am doing it. So you will yield more fruit and be able to produce good wine. 
And that's essentially the lesson that the psalmist is considering here. Each stanza of Psalm 119, each one beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and this one is Tet, uh, the Hebrew letter T, there's there's two T's, Tet and Tav um, in the Hebrew alphabet, but here's Tet, uh, the letter T, and um, it revolves around trial. That's the theme of this passage. You'll see um, there, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He's thinking about the way affliction um, affects us and moves us toward obedience. In verse 69 and 70, we get an essence of what this trial is. Insolent men, uh, the Zedim in the Hebrew, these are men whose personality is prideful, arrogant, insolent, men full of themselves and empty of God. The wicked, the, the insolent, smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It seems he's finding men untrustworthy, uh, unfeeling, un- unmerciful, uncompassionate, and, and it's agonizing to be with them. And that's, that's part of the trial. Have you ever been there? Um, maybe a family member, a brother, a sister, God forbid, a husband or a wife, or a father or mother are being hateful towards you. And their hatefulness stems from arrogance and a, 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 um, a godlessness. As Jesus says, I came not to bring peace but a sword. I came to set father against son and mother against daughter and brother against sister. The, the line of righteousness and wickedness, the people of God and the people of Satan, can split a family in half. And it can be agonizing to be hated by your nearest and dearest. And if that's your testimony in your life, then you have a friend in the psalmist. In verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And, and so you might call uh, this, this stanza the treasures of the darkness or, or the lessons learnt in the fire. What lessons did I learn in the fire? What was that famous poem? I walked a mile with um, sorrow. No, it, before that, I walked a mile with happiness? Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you, brother. My, my brain is still jet-lagged. I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked from me. What can you learn from sorrow? What can you learn from suffering? That's the question that ties this stanza together. And there are a number of lessons. I think there are four. Yes, there are four. First of all, the psalmist says, trouble taught me about God. Trouble taught me about God. You see that there in verse 65 and 68. You have dealt well, literally, you have dealt goodly with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. 
Verse 68, you are good, same word in the Hebrew, and do good, teach me your statutes. Nearly all the lessons the Bible has to teach us about God can be summed in two, the greatness of God and the goodness of God. God is great that He might be feared, and He is good that He might be loved, and trusted, and hoped in. And the psalmist here is about the goodness of God. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 2, says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And the psalmist here says, God, God is good. It's not just that God acts in a good way, or that the idea of goodness somehow exists um, abstractly from God, and whenever the psalmist meets God, he puts the two together. He goes, oh, you're like that good thing that I met in the past. No, the psalmist says God is good. At the core of his being, God is goodness, a fountain of overflowing perfections, flowing down to all of his creatures. There is no goodness apart from God. And all that is good is a, is a reflection of its Creator in its true and deepest nature. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said, Everything that comes from God to His children, it's a mercy. It is as if it were dipped in mercy before it comes to us. Every good we enjoy, and even every sorrow we, we try to avoid and endure, is a mercy, Sib says. There is not more light in the sun, there is not more water in the sea, than there is mercy in the Father of mercies. It is His nature, and it is His name. God is good, and the, the, his, his mercies and His love are part of His goodness. So when we say in the Shorter Catechism, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Goodness there is kind of a—you clicked on it if it, was a, if, if it was a computer back in those days. Mercy and love and kindness and patience would all flow down and out of that one word, uh, goodness. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, God is ever good to His people always good. He is good. He does good. But most sensibly, Manton says, we have proof of God's goodness in our afflictions. When to appearance He seemeth to deal hardly with us, yet all the while He doth us good. God's sanctification of our afflictions is a greater mercy than deliverance out of them, out of them. And the psalmist here says, when I went through suffering, in a sense, life let me down. Circumstances failed me. 
Uh, my health maybe failed me. My friends failed me. My family failed me. In Psalm 27, David says, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord takes me up. But God never failed me. You have dealt goodly with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. How, how does God deal with you? Only always according to his word. He'll never break his, his word to you. He'll never lie to you. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's true. He'll never deceive you. He'll never lie to you. He'll never fail you. He'll always be true to you, true to his word and true to his nature. He is good, and he does good. And sometimes we only ever learn the goodness of God in times of affliction. It's when everything else lets us down. When everything else is taken away, we're left with the kernel of the goodness of God. So Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, when she received word that her husband had died uh, far away in Princeton, remember he had a smallpox vaccination and contracted smallpox and died. Her biographer says she was suffering from her affliction so deeply that she could barely hold the pen to write, and yet she picked up her pen and wrote a letter to her daughter and said in the letter, what shall I say? A holy and a good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of discipline and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had my husband so long. But my God lives, and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Her husband had died, but not her faith in God's goodness. And perhaps she only felt the true sweetness of the goodness of God when the husband was taken away, like Job, when he lost everything except his wife, and that might have been the one thing he wanted to lose because she was not good. But he said, the Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Or even more remarkably, um, Alan Cameron, who was the father of the Scottish covenanter Richard Cameron, who died during the uh, killing times of Charles II in 1680. You remember how the, the, the king's men took his son and beheaded him and cut up, obviously, his head and his hands, and they played soccer with his head out in the courtyard, and they brought the head in a sack to London, and they threw the head down into the lap of this old man, Alan Cameron, and the hands, and said, you recognize these? And Alan Cameron lifted up the hands of his dead son, and he said, I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. Amazing faith that in our trials, our troubles teach us about our God, that He is good. Our life may be bitter, but our God is good, all the way down to the bottom. Study God forever and a day. Go in and in and in and in to God, and you'll only ever find goodness and mercy and truth. And you think, oh, my life's so difficult. I can't, I can't see 
the goodness of God in the darkness. Well, look at Jesus. There he is in hell, on the cross, outer darkness, being treated as sin. And Jesus, in that moment, he's reaching for words, not just to explain his suffering, but to um, reach through his suffering and worship. He turns to the Psalter and Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still worshiping God with the Psalms upon his lips in hell, because God is worthy of worship. Even in that moment of greatest bitterness, Calvin said, the goodness of God is most clearly revealed. Why is God um, casting his son into hell? So that he might be good to you. He's cursing him that he might bless you. And it shows the goodness of God. And if we can see the goodness of God in the sufferings of a son, surely we can see the goodness of God in our own sufferings, no matter how deep and how dark they might be. Trouble taught me about God. Trouble also taught me, the psalmist said, about myself, about myself. We often think we're quite good and doing quite well, and then suffering comes along. And we think about suffering sometimes. We will talk about how suffering um, grows our character, and in a sense it does, but before it grows our character, it reveals our character. In his book, How People Change, Tim Lane says, trials do not cause us to be what we have not been. Rather, they reveal what we have been all along. And that's convicting, but it's also true. Trials reveal our character. And the psalmist says, trials also revealed my character, that I'm not naturally wise and that I'm not naturally obedient. Verse 66, and remember these are the words in the context of suffering, teach me good judgment and knowledge for I believe in your commandments. Isn't it encouraging? Here's a man. Here's a man who's inspired by God to read the Bible, and yet he's conscious, conscious that good judgment, understanding, wisdom often evade him. And he must be taught by God, or he'll never be wise at all. And sometimes we only learn that whenever trials come. When we, we leave a trial appalled, how could I have said such a thing? How could I have done such a thing? And sometimes it takes trial to do that. Like Hezekiah, God left Hezekiah in order to test him to reveal his heart, the chronicler said. And sometimes it's trials, always it's trials, that yes, they form us but they also reveal us, first and foremost, I am not naturally wise, and secondly, I am not naturally obedient. 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The Puritans would say, persecution has killed her thousands, but prosperity or tens of thousands. So often when, when things are going well, we forget our God. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, take heed to yourself that when the Lord brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill. 
and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and cisterns and wells that you did not dig. Take heed to yourselves that you do not forget the Lord your God. And yet time and time again, when God gives us only blessing, we forget Him. And instead of worshiping God and using His gifts, we begin to worship the gifts and to use God. And God must use trials to keep us close to Himself and near to Himself, like the, the old shepherd's remedy for a wandering sheep was to take the, the shepherd's staff and break the sheep's leg. And then the shepherd would carry the sheep on its, his shoulders to stop the sheep wandering off in Scotland. And um, likewise, sometimes the good shepherd must break our leg lest we wander from him. It's the only remedy for a wandering heart. Troubles taught me about God, and troubles taught me about myself. And maybe you're in the midst of trouble, and maybe it's like, you know, sometimes in a soup, when you have a soup, ladies, and all of the goodness, all of the, the meat, all of the vegetables sink to the bottom, and the children will go and get seconds, and they put the ladle in, and all they get is juice, and you've got to stir up the meat to bring all the goodness to the top. Well, in a similar but opposite sense, it's only something we can look at our lives and think we're good and clear and wonderful. It's only when God stirs up our lives through trial that all of the, all of the sediment at the bottom, all of the impurities rise at the top and we realize we're not quite so clear and not quite so clean as we first thought we were. Trouble taught me about God and taught me about myself. Thirdly, trouble taught me about other human beings. They cannot be trusted, and they have no compassion. 69, the insolent smear me about with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Now, this is, I think, a comparative, a contrasting parallelism. The, the Hebrew, we use, um, we use rhyme in our poetry, Right? Uh, there was a man with a beard who said, just as I feared, you know, uh, the, the, you know the rest of the, the, the anyway, the, 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 the mulligan, what do you call it? No, anyway, so, so we use rhyme, right, um, in our poems. But the Hebrews used, uh, they used parallelism. And sometimes parallelism can be repeating the same idea and sometimes it can be a contrasting idea. So, he who opens wide his mouth comes to ruin, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You have the, the, the contrasting idea of a man opening his mouth wide and saying everything that comes into his head, another man restraining his lips. Or in Psalm 1, um, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The contrast between the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And it's that kind of a contrasting parallelism that's going on here, I think, in this psalm. He's contrasting the deceptiveness of men with the truth of God, and the hardness of men with the kindness of God. The insolent smear me with lies. But in contrast to them, with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. And it, 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 it's, is he saying here, Men have failed me and, and have shown me how inherently untrustworthy they are, but their untrustworthiness have driven me to Scripture, which is true and righteous altogether. 
the insolence, sorry, the, their heart is unfeeling like fat. Fat is a metaphor for prosperity in Bible times, and unfeelingness. They're, they're, they're lying, and they feel no shame. Maybe you've met someone like that. I know I have. They, they lie about you. They distort your character. They assassinate your uh, everything you do is, is read through manure-colored glasses. They always present you in, in the worst possible light. Everything you do, everything you say is interpreted in the worst possible interpretation. And they, they feel no badness about it in their heart, and that's the psalmist's experience here. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. But rather than stewing in the bitterness and resentment, rather than being overcome by evil, the psalmist is driven from the wickedness of men and the hardness of men to the goodness and faithfulness of God. But I delight in your law. What a contrast. The hardness, the unfeelingness of the wicked's heart and the gladness of the righteous heart. And that's, that's, that, that's, that is encouraging. It encourages me when I think of people who have been horrible to me and hateful to me. And the devil will come and say, you know, if God loved you, he wouldn't let such people in your life. And yet, God loved the psalmist. And God let such people into the psalmist's life. And rather than becoming bitter, the psalmist became sweet by turning to God and His law. And sometimes it takes trouble to do that, to actually meet a wicked, hateful person who despises you and treats you with malice and impudence. And only when you meet such a person do you reach through them and lay hold of the sweetness of God. And something happens to your soul when you have the God-given strength to do that. And you'll never learn that lesson anywhere else. It takes a wicked person to attack you bitterly, to actually provoke you to reach through their bitterness and lay hold of the sweetness of God. And it's, it's wonderful for the soul. Trouble taught me about God. It taught me about myself. It taught me about the wicked and how to respond to their evil. And then lastly, trouble taught me the value of truth. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And he says that after verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And the psalmist only learned that lesson in times of trial. The prosperous Christian doesn't feel the need of that lesson and often doesn't see the value in Scripture. It's only when you're, when you're going through deep waters and you feel yourself going into the flames that Isaiah 43 will be precious to you. When you go through the waters they will not overflow you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. For you are precious in my sight, and I have given men, even the Son of Man, as your ransom. It's only in the times of trial that such words grip you. 
Augustine said, the Bible is a closed book to the proud. We must stoop before we enter. And I'd also add, we must also often suffer. The Bible is a closed book to the proud, and it's often a closed book to those who are at ease. We kind of sit back and, and, um, and leave our Bibles closed, and sometimes it takes suffering to make us humble, to make us stoop. We might enter through the door of the Bible and find it a garden full of pleasures. Luther said, hardships were his greatest teacher because they made Scripture and prayer come alive to him. And the 17th century preacher John Flavel once wrote, the Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. And two of those three glories will be lost to you in life and health. You need to suffer. You need to be on the valley of the shadow of death, death's dark gorge, in order to feel the sweetness of the shepherd's promise. You will fear no evil, for I will be with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. You never feel that presence of the shepherd, that promise, until we walk down the valley of the shadow of death. The Scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying, and all in Christ. And so, the treasures of the darkness the fearful gift of suffering. As Manton said, God is one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. And so, um, these words come to us as Christians. All of the sufferings we go through in this life are not evidences of God's hatred or indifference to us, They're actually a sign of his father's love. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? When times of pain come, and times of affliction come, and times of difficulty come, God is ringing the school bell. He's lessons to teach us and treasures to give us, the kind you'll not find anywhere else but in the field of, of suffering and in the valley of shadow. May God be gracious to you, Christian, and in so doing, teach you to count it all joy in such times. Let's draw near and ask God's blessing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, that your scriptures show us the lies of the prosperity gospel, as if the gospel promised us prosperity in this world. It's not true the terrible lie and perversion, that you promise us mercy, and you promise us that we will lack no good thing, and yet very often we must go through times of tremendous trial and difficulty to taste 
the fruit of those promises. Like the psalmist, a thousand may fall in my left hand and ten thousand at my right, but it shall not come near you. That, 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 that promise has no relevance apart from at a time of cataclysmic battle. And we bless you, O God, that you've given us promises, and those promises are yea and amen in Christ. And I pray for myself, and I pray for your people gathered here, O Lord, that when you send affliction into our lives, as surely you will, we will not become bitter, but become more sweet and more joyful as we reach through it and lay hold of our Heavenly Father, who's only good, and he only does good, even and especially in the times of bitterness in our lives. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.